Welcome to the Good Shepherd and the Child podcast, where we explore the spirituality of the Christian child using the method of catechesis of the Good Shepherd. I am your host, Carrie Mecki Lozano. Today, we have Rebecca Reutzevich back on the podcast. I love having Rebecca on the podcast because I learned so much from her. She is so wise, and I love just listening to her talk, and I love listening to those episodes over and over. We've had her on multiple times, so go back through our episode list and find the different episodes with her and give them a re-listen or maybe listen to them for the first time because they are chock full of wisdom. Today, specifically, we will be talking about moral life or moral formation in light of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. You can read more about this in Chapter 7 of her book, Life in the Vine, The Joyful Journey Continues. We actually talk about that book back in Episode 26, which was back in December. So if you want to learn more about that brand new book, you can listen to that episode as well. This subject is really beautiful and really deep. And I really feel like it can change spiritual lives, the way that Catechesis of the Good Shepherd approaches moral formation. So I encourage you to think of people in your life that might really benefit from this episode and from the healing that can come from this different perspective of moral life through the eyes of a relationship rather than a list of rules. There are a few things that Rebecca and I refer to in this episode that I wanted to kind of give context to. One of those things is we speak about the child in the second plane. And what we're referring to is the child from ages 6 to 12. This is in reference to Montessori's four stages of development. In Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, we really only work in the first two phases. Phase one is from 0 to 6 which we talk about a lot on this podcast. But today we're going to a little bit talk about that three to six-year-old child, but mostly we really want to dive into that six to 12-year-old child, which we refer to as a phased two child. The other thing that we refer to are Jesus's maxims, which are these short little phrases that Jesus gave to help guide us in our moral life. An example of one might be, say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. Or pray for those who persecute you. In the level two atrium for the six to nine-year-old child, we have a good amount of maxims that the children use in their work. And then in the level three atrium for the nine to 12-year-old child, we have the same maxims, but we've added more to the collection. I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with Rebecca, and I am excited to share it with you. I hope you guys enjoy. Rebecca, I am always so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad that you've joined us again. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And I'm really excited about this topic, too. We have talked on the podcast a lot about the level one child um, and their depth of knowledge about God, but we haven't dove into that second plane child as much. And so I'm excited to do that with you. But I'm also really excited to discuss this specific topic of the moral life and moral formation with you. And I think it's because when I did my formation with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, my view of morality changed from, I think, what many of us probably, the way we were taught about morality was the Ten Commandments and what's right and what's wrong. And when I did my formation with Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, 
it changed more into a response from a relationship, which is so freeing. (laughs) And so I really, I love this topic specifically in light of Catechesica Shepherd because of that. Right. Well, in um, my book, Life in the Vine, I start off with quoting Father Arupe, a Jesuit priest um, from long ago, where he speaks about falling in love, the importance of falling in love, and that when we fall in love, it will determine what gets us out of bed in the morning, what we read, who we know, what thrills us, what we feel, you know, the empathy towards others. It will decide Mm -hmm. everything, he says. And really, as you said, one of the greatest gifts to me of the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd and my formation in it was seeing that topic of moral life in a completely new dimension. As you said, Mm -hmm. I think the tendency in general among people is when we hear the word moral, we think of a moral code. We think of what constitutes a good person. We think of, yes, we want our children to be good people and do the Mm -hmm. right thing. And certainly that's important in our life because there is a moral code that God has given us. But without understanding that it's a response to a love relationship, it loses its power, its authenticity, and its capacity to grow and flower and flourish. Mm -hmm. So as I was thinking about uh, how to approach this, I would start with Sophia's, one of her earlier books, that Before the Religious Potential of the Child. It was called Teaching Doctrine and Liturgy. And she says in that book that if we teach morality, it must be rooted in love. And later in that, she says, she quotes one of the little brothers of Jesus who said, you know, in the end, one cannot obey more than one loves. And for me, that uh, captures that reality, that the true morality is rooted in relationship, a relationship of love with God, with Jesus, with his plan, with his beautiful, mysterious kingdom. As you mentioned, a lot of people immediately associate morality with the Ten Commandments. And so in preparing for this, I don't speak about this in the book, but in preparing for it, it sent me back to that moment when the Ten Commandments were given. And what kind of relationship did God have at that point in history with God's people? So I thought of it as God was the all-powerful one, the far away, all-powerful, omnipotent God who was their deliverer. I looked at it as more this parental role. God, but, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about the children of Israel. And God was certainly that almighty parent. And like a good parent, knew what was best for them and knew that they needed a guideline to live fully. That's powerful, and it's important. And the Ten Commandments are that first gift of a guide. How do I live close to God? How do I 
continue in this relationship. But then I went back to Abraham, and I was thinking about how the Muslim people call him Ibrahim, friend of God. And I thought about how, oh, Abraham predates Moses. But already in Abraham, we see a preview of the kind of relationship God most wants with us. You know, we know Abraham listened, obeyed, worshipped, kept building altars. God, we know that Abraham even argued with God at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That Abraham had that friendship relationship with God. And in a friendship, and especially in a friendship with God, there is this deep, deep trust. Of course, that previewed the relationship that we are meant to have with Jesus. You know, mm-hmm. So if we ask, what sort of relationship does he ultimately invite us to want for us? And we can think in the Gospels how he continues to say, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so again, this relationship, we know in those statements of Jesus that it's not just about our relationship with Jesus, the Son, but it's also about our relationship with God the Father. Mm -hmm. Remember in the parable of the good shepherd, he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as I know the Father and the Father knows me. So it's a hint that we are being invited into something much bigger than a relationship with the Savior, which, Mm -hmm. as we know, Jesus has many names. One of them is Savior. And whenever we hear that word Savior, we have to think about What are we being saved from, but also what are we being saved for? That came out already in in the Exodus, where Moses and God are trying to get Pharaoh to, to release his people. And there we get to see God isn't just trying to free them from slavery, but he's freeing them for this new life of freedom in worshiping him. And so Jesus, too, comes to save us from something, but even more for something. And then, as we know, it's in the parables that he shares the most intimate secrets about who he is, who we are, who God is. That's where the relationship that we are meant to have with him, with God, is most clear. And so if we look just at the Good Shepherd, he calls, he calls by name, he leads, he provides. And even more than that, and I bring this out too in the book, It's more than a functional kind of love where he has a 
a duties list, a checklist. If I'm going to be the savior of the world, then I need to be sure of this and this and this and do this and this and this. This comes out when we do the found sheet with younger children Mm -hmm. or what is more commonly known as, you know, the lost sheet. Mm -hmm. But it's that when he knows one is missing, he doesn't put it off. He doesn't say, oh, dear, I'm so tired. Uh, Tomorrow, first thing, I'm going to go out and look for that sheep. No. He goes immediately and searches until he finds it. And that very much strikes the younger child. Of course he would. They are not the least bit concerned with the fact that he leaves the others to go find this one sheep. They get it that he, his love for his sheep is not just a list of duties as Savior but that he delights in his sheep. Psalm 149 um, says that the Lord takes pleasure, the Lord delights, it depends on your translation, in his people. Um, I've often said this, but I wonder how many adults, when they think of him, um, think of him as deliriously excited to be with me, with you in prayer, be close, that it's more than just, yes, I'm the Savior, you're the penitent, you're the needy one, you've come to me, of course I'm going to help you. But this is a different kind of relationship. He takes pleasure Mm -hmm. in, delights in his sheep. And so we see through the eyes of the younger child just how much this relationship is established through that desire and delight and pleasure in one another's company. Sophia, you know, thought for many years, and her collaborators, John Nagobi and others, thought the reason that the child, the young child, is so attracted to the Good Shepherd is because he's a sort of mother figure and they feel safe with him. They know he'll take care of them. It took Sophia and John many years to realize that there's another quality of relationship, a a greater, higher quality of relationship that's going on there. And it's one of friendship. So I always send people back to the religious potential of the child that's so beautifully documented with children's artwork. Because figure 14, for me, really uh, exemplifies this most beautifully, where the child has the shepherd is the predominant figure. He's holding a sheep on his shoulders. There are many sheep along the margins and down the bottom that have a name over them. But what's striking is the sheep around his neck, who's been found, looks deliriously happy just sort of nirvana and but what's even more striking is the face of the shepherd who is equally thrilled beyond measure to be back with his sheep Mm -hmm. this is why Sophia has helped us see that at the very core of this relationship God calls us to and that we see unfolding throughout the entire Bible is this relationship that's called the covenant. And the covenant 
is established always through gift. It's when we respond to that gift that the relationship is really firmly established. What's important is that God initiates the covenant always through gift, Mm -hmm. not through a test, not through here's the behavioral code. If you're going to be my children, you're going to be as at Mount Sinai, then you will do these things. If you pass the test, then you can be considered my child, my, my beloved. If not, well, but this is something very different. And it helps us go back and see those do's and don'ts as a loving mother who knows what's best for her child and who gives her child these guidelines for their safety and for their joy and security. So the youngest children are the ones that have taught us what is at the root of moral formation Mm -hmm. and what's at the root of it is falling in love. Receiving that gift, enjoying that gift. Again, one can in the end not obey more than one loves. So that is the only sure foundation of a moral life is that falling in love with God and with God's amazing, mysterious and beautiful kingdom. That's why in that what we call the level one atrium, or even before that, in the toddler atrium, it's all about seeing the gift, enjoying the gift, letting the gift become incarnate in the person. Mm -hmm. And the first response is what in that covenant for a three-year-old? It's not, oh, I know you love me, so I'm going to be sure to obey my mommy and my daddy, and I'm going to do this. And they aren't thinking of what they have to do. Their first response, as is the most basic response to any gift, is delight, enjoying it, looking at it. I always loved when the merchant, the pearl merchant, comes back home with his, that most precious pearl, Mm-hmm. And he puts it in my material. I have a little low shelf, has to be eye level because he. I don't think the merchant would ever put his newly acquired beautiful pearl on a high shelf where he couldn't see it all the time. <laughs> and so he comes over and he stares at that pearl. And I'm sure I probably shared this with you the first podcast we did but because it was in my first atrium. After Rome training, uh, we were doing the precious pearl, and a little girl, Annie, was sitting. We were on the floor, and the material on a mat, and we were gathered, huddled around it. And at the end, I said, "I wonder what the merchant would do now that he has this pearl." And someone had said, "Oh." He had hide it under his pillow, and another child had said he'd show his best friend. And as these little comments were coming forth, Annie was just staring. And at a certain moment, she was right to my left. I could feel her. This I, I've described it as like a little volcano that was building up and going to spew. And she suddenly threw up both her hands and blurted out he wouldn't even want to eat his dinner (laughs) and for me again that is quintessential 
difference in the young child and in many adults. We hear that parable, we go straight to the moral implications, Mm. primarily renunciation. Oh, he found this, but in order to have it, he had to give up that. He had to sell Mm. all he had in order to have it. And adults just get stuck there. Uh, that That is, in a sense, what the typical adult uh, understanding of this parable is that it's a moral parable. We have to mm-hmm. give up something if we're going to have the better gifts. But the little child teaches us, no, I'm being offered a gift. This is beautiful. This is a treasure. I'm going to enjoy it. And when that happens, there is a natural movement in their life, especially as they move into the second plane of development, when there's a natural moral reasoning, both in capacity and a need to do moral reasoning, that's when you start to see that they want to know, they want to think about more. Oh, what did he do? But it's really not until the second half of the second plane, the nine to 12 year old, when you see them then naturally start to apply it to their own lives. And I know in Religious Potential, also in my book, I refer to it because to me it's the best example I've ever had of that natural movement towards applying these parables to one's own life is the boy that came into Atrium one week in nine, he was in I don't know, he was in the level three atrium, so somewhere between nine and 12. And he just said very casually, I sold my pearls to be here. <laughs> yeah. And when the catechists, you know, asked for clarity on that, what? He said that his best friend had offered him what they call football, uh, soccer tickets to a really important game. And the boy had chosen instead to come to atrium so his natural way of saying that was i sold my pearls to be here this is what the children teach us again that that at the root of it is falling in love and the way we fall in love is hearing about the gift it's listening to those parables in the atrium it's taking time to look at those gifts and then there's a natural movement, especially as we said in the level two or the second plane child, there's going to be a natural desire to belong to that beautiful kingdom Mm -hmm. and contribute to it. So we know then that in the, that second plane child, that the linchpin parable we know is the parable of the true vine. Yes. Yeah. And so we look at why would why would we say it is the quintessential moral parable? Does it talk about any do's and don'ts? Well, it does mention some do's, a lot of do's, <laughs> remain in me, bear fruit. But it's not a list of behaviors. It's a complete other mode of teaching that Jesus was using the parable method. And in that parable, he's inviting us into an even deeper and richer relationship in which he's the vine, we are the branches, every branch shares with him 
one life, that sap that is the life of the risen Jesus. It's a tremendous mystery of belonging, of knowing who, who we are. And then Jesus says, if you remain in me and I remain in you, if you keep my commandments, you will bear much fruit. And this is a great need of the second plane child to act, to contribute, to collaborate. Mm -hmm. they, they have an innate call to action. I had pointed out in this, in my book, Life in the Vine, that when we look at John the Baptist in the desert calling out, or Jesus repeated the same words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for adults, mm -hmm. that's their usual starting place. We have to repent in order to claim this gift. But the younger second plane child, the six, seven, eight-year-old, they hear that completely differently. They hear it as get busy, <laughs> start moving. There's work to be done. Uh, prepare in the desert a highway. It's a perfect match to that earlier part of the uh, second plane when they want to be part, they want to work, they want to move in a direction. Mm -hmm. And then we see that moral formation is also becomes refined in the way of there is something we need to do. And they mm -hmm. begin to look also at Jesus as the one who invites us to that big work. In your chapter, chapter seven of Life in the Vine, there was something that you said that made me think about what you're talking about. It was in regards to the parables specifically, but to allow the child really to have ample time to sit, especially that younger, younger six to 12 year old child. So maybe like the six, seven and eight year child to allow them more time to sit because they might not be ready yet to push them into that personal application, as you say. Absolutely. Just recently, I helped my niece who is seven. She just actually, she just turned eight with her sacrament preparation. And we were doing the true vine parable together. And she did just that. She just wanted to sit with the joy and the remaining. Like she wasn't yes. yet at that personal application as an eight-year-old. She just wanted to enjoy. And in her yeah. artwork, you could see like there was all these happy faces and hearts and smiles and suns. And it was because the parable it elicited a lot of joy out of her still. Yes. She hadn't she hasn't gotten to that place yet of the the list as you are talking about. Exactly. That then maybe as nine to twelve year old, you'll see that more. One of my favorite reflections on the true vine that Sophia shared with us in, in my formation was she had us count the numbers of time in that parable times when the word remain or depending on your translation abide um, mm -hmm. but the number of times remain is used and the number of times bear fruit is used and Ten, it's 10 times remain and five times spare fruit. And she was pointing out that there is no, that's not happenstance in scripture. There's 
the the Jewish mind knows the significance of number. So mm-hmm. she invited us. So what is the message there? If 10 times he says remain and only five bear fruit. So again, back to your story, the girl, the, the truth is that that's what we tend to skip over, that just enjoying receiving the gift, mm-hmm. pondering the gift. And that's why when we present the true vine to children, we never go on in the first sitting to what happens when there are problems in the vine. What happens when a particular branch looks a little, um, you know, the leaves are yellowed, the fruit is shriveled, you know. That's, that will come because it's part of the reality that, that there will be problems in the vine, particularly in my own branch, when I fail to do what he's told me to do or do what he's told me not to do, there will be problems and I will need help to get rid of the language we use, the blocks that have formed in the veins that carry that sap. And of course, I will need help. And there's always that reminder that what he wants most of all, he tells us in verse 11 in in that parable in John 15, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your Mm -hmm. joy may be full. But that is what I think we as adults often forget. What the second plane child then also has a new context for moral life. And that is when we give them the history of the kingdom of God. At first, as you know, we're only giving them the big picture. But the golden thread is that God has always had a plan Mm -hmm. to bring all people and all creation into this fullness of life and joy in the kingdom. And so once they see that, once they see the plan, the movement of history, of time, and once they come to this place we are at in this history, where we don't know how long it will be before he will come again, but we know he will. And we know that when he Mm -hmm. does, it will establish this whole new and unending phase of the Paris, what we call the parousia, the Greek word for the second coming. And when they look at that and work with it, they come to that moment on the on the timeline where we are and they see there's much work that has to be done because mm-hmm. the the light and love of Christ has not reached every person yet. Do I have a part in that? We know he calls us to do his work in the world, to help him do this work in the world so that God can be all in all. And so that perspective is a tremendously moral perspective for the second plain child, that sense of belonging, of there's a big work to be done. I am called to do it. I'll skip ahead a little here because I I really uh, love this particular parable that we do in level three. And it's the workers in the vineyard where Mm -hmm. the wisdom of children helps us see this parable in a completely different way. It's 
it's a problematic parable for many adults because, hey, what's fair about that? They work <laughs> all day and they get the same pay if this slacker who happens to, you know, trip in at the last hour. But do you know what older children can see so readily? How boring it would be to be in the town square trying to get a job, having nothing to do, nothing meaningful to do. They have, this older child has the capacity to see the gift in being called into the vineyard to work. Mm. That it's, it changes that whole uh, meaning of that parable, that how, how great that they were called early in their life to be part of this important work that's going on, this work of transformation. So, mm -hmm. again, they have so much to teach us. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, we're going to, we're going besides the true vine, that for that second plain child, there are many more what we call moral parables. And there's also the maxims, because Jesus also gave us some one-liners to, why did mm -hmm. he do that? Um, it's through the parable that we come to understand and be part of that mystery. But then he knows that we need even more help. So he gives us these maxims, these one-liners, so we can kind of carry them in our back pocket. And, and they do serve us as yet another guide. But it's really in the moral parables that we began to exercise that moral reasoning and we began to hopefully think like God, have the perspective that Christ had about towards others, towards God, towards his own role in his time and history. And those moral parables as the child grows will become more and more challenging, like the workers in the vineyard or the one where the guy shows up at the wedding banquet in the wrong outfit and gets thrown mm -hmm. out into utter darkness. You know, things that on first hearing can seem too harsh, too, too uh, difficult. But the older child who, especially the older child who's had some years in the atrium, are profoundly wise and can mm -hmm. discern those more subtle calls to us and what they mean and they rise to that challenge they're they're in a sense honored that he thinks they can do that they know they're being called to something greater many years ago here in, in memphis i went to uh, temple israel one of our jewish synagogues here and i listened to a man a rabbi who came from jerusalem and he was talking about the Ten Commandments in terms of revealing the unique spirituality of the Hebrew people. And quite simply, he said, the easier thing for a people is to see themselves as victims and to spend their energy and their time focused on how they're being abused or cheated out of their rights or whatever. He said he contrasted that with the attitude of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And he spoke about God's 
the, the underlying message in the Ten Commandments is you are capable of a higher plane of living. And Sophia does a similar thing when she does the armor of light meditations and <clears throat> with the nine to 12 year old children and they, they look at other maxims and really, and acknowledge how tough they are sometimes. But then what she shares in the religious potential two, six to 12 is that in the end, when she asks them, okay, these are difficult. So do we wish they didn't exist? Would we like to just forget this, you know, commandment or, mm-hmm. and the children oh, across the board were, no, no, no. It, it's good because it means he thinks we can do it. So hmm. again, that's a wisdom perspective that those difficult things are given to us also out of love. Um, in later years, I've used a lot the um, the imagery of the athlete. And in our culture, there is such a high value on the professional athlete, right? Mm-hmm. Who makes more money yeah. in, of anyone in this country, the professional athlete. And it would be laughable to any serious athlete if they were told, oh, you don't have to practice, just show up, you've got talent, just show up for the, uh, you know, the game or the contest or the Super Bowl or whatever. The athlete knows to their core that if they want to be really great at their sport, they have to work at it, they have to practice, they have to adhere to a discipline. And they know the minute they don't, the minute they slack off and uh, eat a whole bag of Cheetos and whatever, that they are jeopardizing, seriously jeopardizing their ability to compete. And we know that image in St. Paul about running the race and that we are competitors in a sense, but it's, it's all in how we look at that discipline that Jesus didn't invent, but he went back to the Ten Commandments, as we know, all summarized as love, loving. Mm-hmm. And he knew how difficult it was to really live at that plane of moral life. And so he helped us in many, many ways to live that. I like that analogy of the athlete. I've never thought of it that way in that's a really great way to apply it to us needing to kind of exercise our our muscles in a way in regards yes. to us remaining. You know, we actually yes. have to practice and put discipline into remaining. Right. So the other, um, fa- another, I won't say the other, because I'm terrible about saying my favorite. <laughs> so I have so many <laughs> favorites, right? But one of the materials and works in the level three atrium, the child nine to 12, that I most love is the individual strip of the gifts, where in the six to nine year old atrium, we had that big strip of the gifts um, that stretched out halfway across the room and 
begins with the mineral world and the plants and the animals and the gift of other humans and rises to a crescendo of the gift of Jesus and his ongoing presence to us in the Eucharist and moving us towards that blank page when we enjoy, we use, we help to transform, and we share those gifts of God in order to hasten or help that day of parousia come. It's a very Mm -hmm. beautiful, big work. But then in level three, we have a smaller one that message in the big gift strip is so important that we come back to it in level three and it's a very personal work and as they do the work as they lay some some sample treasures out on those different areas those different levels of creation they come to a card that invites them to write their response in their own private prayer journal and it's questions to them personally you know like what gifts have i received that i enjoy most you know Mm -hmm. when did i receive those best gifts and so but then at the bottom of that card there's a statement that to me sums up the word vocation It says, the way that I receive and respond to these gifts God has given me in my life is the way that I write my blank page. Mm. So it is going a movement towards that realization that God's gifts are not just universal gifts. Everybody can enjoy them. There's no nothing personal about it. It brings us back to this. My part in this kingdom of God, my part in helping to build this kingdom of God is unique because that's how God works. He calls me by my name. It's always communal as well. We saw that in the Good Shepherd. He calls each sheep by name, but they are a flock. And the whole end goal is to have one flock, one shepherd. And so it is both profoundly personal and profoundly communal. And here we see, again, that as the child grows, as the child develops, the child and each of us must always go back to the gift that is the primary way God communicates with each of us Mm. in order to find our place in this larger project of God, but also to know his complete joy. I am constantly amazed with how the children are, are guiding us back to God just yes. listening to you lifting up the children's responses to parables, to the Bible, to um, scripture, and how they are pointing us to the essential of what God is trying to tell us in regards to moral yes. life. Yes. It constantly amazes me, one, how wrong we tend, maybe wrong's not the right word, but how maybe distracted we get from the essential. 
as adults yes. um yes and how easy they get it and how we can just follow their lead to those essential yeah. things of just yes having that relationship responding to that relationship with love and and that's it yes. it's not it's yes. not more complicated than that no it really isn't we're adults are masters at complications so. yeah <laughs> Yeah. yeah, we really are. I'm just really grateful for wiser people than me that have come before me that have noticed the children's responses um, yes. that then yes. can gift us all with yes. noticing it. Mm. This is a big subject, Rebecca. This is a really big subject. It is. It is. <laughs> um my other other image I carry around with me all the time is, again, as we know, uh, Sophia's main collaborator in moral formation was Father Dalmazio Mongillo, who was, mm -hmm. um, he was actually head of moral theology at the Angelicum, one of the pontifical universities in Rome. And he was the embodiment of a child. Uh, he had the rosy cheeks, especially when we were getting ready to have a food treat at our gatherings. <laughs> he would get all excited, just like any eight-year-old. <laughs> he was brilliant, but he he enjoyed every uh, every moment of sharing the good news, and and it was always so evident. But he's the one who gave us this image of comparing uh, the ornaments on a Christmas tree to the fruits on the true vine. And he said those ornaments are just hanging there. They're decorations. But they have no connection to the life of that tree, right? They're not connected in a vital way, in a living way. And yet, the fruit on a grapevine is very much a product, an outward showing of that life. There's a vast difference. Christmas tree ornaments delight us. They're beautiful. Being a quote good person who always does good things is a delightful contribution to society. Nobody dislikes unless they're a little too goody two shoes. No one <laughs> you know, dislikes a person who does nice things, good things, nice things, polite things. But we're being called to that deeper level of life in which what we do is coming from, is springing from that inner life of love that we have with him. And, and that's why Jesus said, they will see your good works and they will, he doesn't say, they will know that you're a really good person. <laughs> he says, they mm -hmm. will see your good works and they will glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, through those works that flow out of our life of love with him, they will find him as well. Because that's what those fruits are for, <laughs> really. It's to mm -hmm. bring, to feed, to nourish to bring others to that understanding and knowledge of him. Well, once again, Rebecca, I feel like I have a lot to ponder. You know, I, 
I've even been through formation and discussed this and thought about this before. But after this conversation, I feel like there are many nuggets that you've brought up in me that I just need to kind of sit and percolate and let the Holy Spirit guide me through that some more. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for being on the podcast again and for sharing all of this beautiful wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Happy Lent. What's left of it. Uh, Happy (laughs) Easter. Good to talk to you. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Rebecca and I. Again, I just think that this subject is really important and really transformative, especially for those that are involved in sacrament preparation, even for parents who have children going through sacrament preparation. This subject is so beautiful and so important in our whole family and during those beautiful moments in our lives. Rebecca referred to a book by Sophia Cavaletti called Teaching Doctrine in Liturgy. And this book is no longer in print. It's kind of a precursor to Religious Potential of the Child. So if you want to know more about that content, we would suggest picking up the book Religious Potential of the Child. If you would like to purchase Rebecca's book, Life in the Vine, The Joyful Journey Continues, I will put a link in our show notes. This podcast is sponsored by the United States Association of Catechesis of the Good Shepherd. We would like to thank all the contributing members for making this podcast possible. If you would like to know more about Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, or if you would like to become a member, please go to cgsusa.org. Thank you all for joining us this week. We will see you in two weeks. Go and fall more deeply in love with God.